I do think it's very funny that Neil Gorsuch's interpretation of originalism has clearly backfired on the people who tried to place him there since like <laughs> half of Oklahoma is now uh, <laughs> like held up as Native American again. Yeah. No. I, uh, Neil, Neil Gorsuch just identifies as a judge. <laughs> I identify I mean, as a judge. <laughs> but do you identify as a justice? There no, is no. B is the justice because she's blind. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Today, we have a really fun episode, but I think before we get into that, I'll just quickly say if you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. Um, we do two episodes a week, so the only way to get the bonus episode is to become a patron. And this last week's was really good. Oh, yeah, it um, was really, oh, yeah. really it a was good one. One of my favorites. Don't take our word for it. I do actually like them all, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a pretty good one. We do mm. tend to get a little spicier in the patron ones because, you know... <laughs> Safety of a paywall. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I should make a disclaimer that my voice might be weird today. I had an infusion reaction on my Monday night and a very fun trip to the emergency room, which is another great reason to become a patron because uh, Medicare cost sharing is 80, 20 percent with 20 percent on the patient. And I Yikes. will have an ambulance bill, but I'll, I'll wait to be surprised for that when it comes. Um, ideally, but, we would like it to be 80 percent Medicare, 20 percent patrons. <laughs> no, um, ideally, 100 percent Medicare. I yeah, I, I don't. Yeah. No cost sharing. No one needs that. We all know. that. Here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nobody asked for cost sharing. So, yeah, my lung capacity is not amazing today, but I'm, I'm looking forward to getting into this. So, panel, we are looking at um, a rapidly approaching end of July right now. And we've been, you know, talking a lot in our in our planning and our and our hangout time together off mic, you know, about all the things that we want to be watching in terms of like what's what Congress is doing, because we're looking at right now Congress staring at like a very, very empty word doc right now that just says like CARES Act 2 ellipsis on the top uh-huh. <laughs> in this in this paper i will <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly the dictionary definition of unemployment insurance yeah, is- exactly. <laughs> and you oh, just you boy. just blow it up to like you know 15 point cambria add a couple figures in yeah you, know, you make yeah. the margins 1.75 and, and you put it put it in a glossy um a uh, little binder, you're good. I feel yeah. I feel yeah. extremely seen because these these really this this was really my college experience. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, yeah, Wikipedia carried me through Gallatin. Yeah, um, <laughs> no, hey, uh, that's Gallatin's fault, not Wiki. Don't blame Wikipedia for that. That's true. NYU is a corrupt institution. Anyway, so yeah. uh, <laughs> no, no, no. We love Daddy NYU, who will be billing me very soon. Yeah, <laughs> right. No, but this is like Congress is on recess. Yeah. There is the prospect now of, you know, it had been the case that Mitch McConnell had said, look, if you don't put liability for businesses in this bill, (laughs) if you don't put liability protections in this bill, there's going to be no bill. No one's getting anything until Mm. you go through. You got to go through me. And that's my (laughs) that's my demand. Uh, Now, it seems you know, that, that that demand is probably still going to be the cost of doing business, at least in some way. But now it seems that 
the White House has realized maybe that's sort of an election year and uh, <laughs> a little bit. Oops. And uh, they seem a little bit more friendly to the idea of doing some additional stimulus payment. But uh, number one, they've already said that it's just going to be really narrow. There's going to be a really low cap on it. Uh, something like uh, people earning less than $40,000 a year. Yes. Um, and uh, <laughs> that's sort of the, that seems like the best uh, that they're going to, going to do out of this. So they've learned maybe some, that it's an election year, but it's still, it, every year is an austerity year. Yeah. It just happens to be an election year. That's also another yeah. austerity year. Yeah, totally. Well, I mean, so it's, it's not like the first cares act um, adequately set pretty much anyone up to survive the pandemic, especially not state and local governments. Um, And I remember seeing a breakdown of like, I can't remember what it was that the Trump administration had said their cap was going to be for state and local governments. $1 trillion. Not for state and local governments, $1 trillion cap total, which if you, which basically like, for the whole bill bill is, was their uh, starting bargaining point, which as Jeff Stein, you know, pointed out, if you do like a round of $1,200 checks and like extend unemployment insurance uh that's already like 1.2 trillion or something so you know yeah whatever but as as we talked obviously there's a a bunch of wrangling going on this is a really important uh moment for like messaging in general Mm -hmm. um i think you know for example Mm -hmm. like uh shout outs to friend of the show nathan tankus who had a great post about um the the absolute necessity to extend the federal unemployment uh insurance assistance and boost that dropped us this morning but i think one thing that we wanted to touch on since you know Congress has done that lovely thing that they seem to enjoy to do in the midst of this pandemic, which is to go on recess uh, (laughs) at exactly the time when people would maybe want to, you know, hear some sort of, uh, you know, reassurance or any kind of messaging. I don't know. We're working on it. I mean, it seems pretty clear that like the first party to pick up the banner of like, we're going to help everybody probably could score some very easy political points. But, you know, what the fuck? <laughs> do, what, what do we know? Right. So, yeah, um, but I Already, think that's crazy. There was this um, argument that we've seen circulating because um, we, we want to we basically we've been thinking about like circling back to talk about the CARES Act and what it did. Obviously, like we've we've you know, we have not didn't do <laughs> yeah, we have what it didn't do, I think more specifically, because uh, yeah, we've obviously spared we've pulled no punches on the CARES Act. But I think mm-hmm. that what's interesting is um, since the CARES Act has been like the things that happened from the CARES Act and the, the actions since basically, including you know not just the actual aid that was offered, but the sort of like political messaging um, that has yeah. happened. Uh, from it directly and afterwards has set up a lot of the conditions that we're seeing today in a way. And like, you know, basically now that we're a couple months out from the passage of the CARES Act, in a way, this is the this is a time when actually we can begin to look at some indicators of uh, like what exactly happened as a reaction Mm -hmm. uh, to it. And there's sort of like a nascent argument floating around, mostly identified by uh, two things. One is like a pretty weak, not very good piece I would characterize as but yeah by like Eric Levitz um, about Mm -hmm. how like Republicans alone bungled state and federal aid it was fine whatever Um, and then like a a short piece by David Dan um, that argued that essentially in the like that the CARES Act itself in its insufficient response to you know the the very obvious reality of what was about to happen to state uh, and local budgets during a pandemic that that in itself sort of precipitated the conditions for earlier reopenings and thus for the Mm -hmm. further spread of the pandemic so we've 
been looking into that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the, and I think this is important to just set the context because what is going to happen. And we talked a little bit about this on the patron episode, but what's going to happen now is that because Congress has failed to act, the blame sort of rolls downhill. So Congress fails to act. Right. States have less money. That means local governments and school districts have less money. And gradually everyone is going to be forced into this position of pretending that they're doing things or that they can do things that they know that they can't do, Mm -hmm. uh, that we can, we can like have a normal school year that that (laughs) you're going to get your, uh, EMS call responded to promptly that, uh, you know, you're going to have, like if, if your house burns down, uh, you are going to have the fire department like there quickly, like pretty soon it's going to be clear that we're, that's none of that is going to be happening, uh, in any sort of uh, normal way. And, Mm -hmm. It's going to be important to like look back and think about like what could we have done to prevent this? And the blame, I think, has to be put squarely on uh, Congress, not Republicans, uh, Congress, because while Republicans were obstructionist about some things in in the CARES Act, the agenda that was set in the CARES Act was so limited uh, th- and you cannot charge that to Republicans, uh, alone. That's a, right. that is a two party, uh, that is a two party dance. Mm-hmm. So like the, this inaction by Congress is creating an impossible set of conditions for states in which states are being pressured to, uh, reopen. And, and indeed, like there was a, there was a report that came out, I think in the last month or so that just showed like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, when, when Indiana reopened, it actually improved its state tax revenues. It was ah. able to like, you know, recoup some of some of its losses. And that really exposes to me the logic here, right. uh, which is that if you are uh, experiencing, if you're a state that's experiencing revenue constraints, um, it actually the the pressure that you might face from businesses to reopen is in many ways it, you don't even have to follow the money or trace the lobbying to see what's <laughs> going on here. <laughs> This is not a story about Democrats or Republicans. It's not even necessarily a story about, you know, the the sort of nefarious uh, business lobbies in the right. states. It's mm-hmm. a story about the fact that state governments have to, by their own choice, with the exception of Vermont, balance their budgets <laughs> every year. Federal government doesn't have to. Right. Right. Unfortunately, in the 90s, that is what people wanted the federal government to have to do. People were pushing mm-hmm. a balanced budget <laughs> constitutional amendment. There's some people still pushing that amazingly. Um, (laughs) Scott Walker being one of them. So like we can only really rely on the federal government because it it can deficit spend. State governments have prevented themselves from doing so. Many state governments can't even really go over a certain level of uh, debt or accumulate a certain level of debt. Mm -hmm. So this means that regardless even of what business pressure or partisan pressure states face, when states are really dependent on revenue that's declining in a recession they're going to have an incentive to do things to try to get that revenue back. Right. Um, and so one, what I did was I tried to look at uh, what happens in states that rely heavily on, first, that rely heavily on income tax revenue as a percentage of the revenue that they get. Because there are other forms of revenue that aren't as in jeopardy in a crisis. Right. And they're, they're bad forms of revenue, revenue collection in their own right. Property taxes is a horrible way of generating revenue. Uh, because it's very easy for people to hide the value of their property. Um, but in a economic recession, it takes a while for home prices to fall and it takes a while for states to experience the effects of that. Uh, and so 
you're, that sort of insulates you a little bit. Um, right. There are other forms of revenue there that are a little bit more volatile. One, I'll give you an example of, is the lottery. Uh, in Pennsylvania, <laughs> oh for example, oh long-term, long-term services and supports, Medicaid, uh, depends significantly on the lottery. And they remind you every time the lottery plays in Pennsylvania. Lottery budgets or lottery revenues across the states uh, have been falling really fast. People have not been buying lottery tickets, no. which means that any program that's funded by the lottery, and again, in Pennsylvania, it's nursing homes, it's HCBS, uh, they have been, uh, they're really now in, in trouble that they haven't been before. Even bigger problem is income tax. Right. Um, states that have progressive um, income tax structures, right? Everything, most people agree, income tax is a better way of taxing than, than property. But in a, a recession like this, you can't just magically snap your fingers uh, if businesses are closed or if people can't go to work and like just generate income tax uh, out of thin air. Um, and so what I wanted to do was try to look at uh, are states that rely more on income tax uh, as a source of revenue more likely to proceed with reopening even when you control for like how many cases per 100,000 uh, right. they're mm -hmm. experiencing. And what you see pretty clearly is even when you control for things like the party of the governor and the state's Trump vote share and the population and a bunch of other things, when states have uh, just a modest increase in the extent to which they rely on individual income tax, there's like a 9% increase in their likelihood of reopening. That's crazy. Uh, wow. That's when you, that's that, has, that says nothing about, yeah, that says nothing about when you're uh, experiencing a greater share of cases or an increase in cases of COVID-19. When cases of COVID-19 uh, increase in general, states tend not to proceed with reopening. But again, there are states where cases are increasing and they're still, uh, if they rely heavily on uh, the income tax as a source of revenue, they're going to be more likely to uh, to reopen. And the right. same is true for states that have just larger uh, fiscal capacity. They're, they stand to lose more if right. the uh, economy is closed. And so they're going to face this pressure. If Congress does nothing, they're going to be more likely uh, to reopen. Uh, and mm. so like this is the problem when we like rely on like polarization as mm -hmm. like the boogeyman of like American politics, right, so like exactly. the Republican Party is the boogeyman of American politics. It's the structures that we have right. uh, no, exactly. that are forcing us in this position. Because there's, uh, you know, there have been a, a ton of studies uh, start like at least um, more recently starting to look at like how political polarization can uh, be a predictor, right, of uh, mm -hmm. whether of what mm -hmm. the what individual states um, took as measures, right. Um, but as you as as you pointed out, Phil, like. A lot of those studies have used indicators like the ones that you're looking at, right? Like um, whether it's how states collect their revenue, uh, you know, their their potential even for taxing revenue. Since you know, in in the like sort of traditional model of thinking of uh, and the basically the encouraged model, uh, essentially in ter in terms of like the American sort of like social and political political economy, right? Is that like states? We we've talked about this in terms of the federal government, where it's like oh, people like federal uh politicians at the federal level talk often about like oh you have to balance the state's budget uh the like the mm -hmm. government's budget like you balance a family checkbook or whatever right and that's right. Cle like clearly not true but then in in like in 
practice. It's often what we force states to do, um, though obviously there are, and shout outs to, um, what's that town in small town in Washington that start just created its own currency, but like, you know, shout outs to, to at least one local government in the United States. I didn't know This like just came out right before we recorded, but oh, the, cool. um, I don't feel so bad about missing there's it. like, uh, yeah, there's like, I don't know. Tenio, some, Tenio Washington. Is, Tenio, is, Washington is, Tenio Washington. Yeah. 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 Population so, 1,884. Cool. Exactly. So like small town Antonio, Washington, shout out to you guys for creating a local currency, getting around the austerity loop. Um, but you know, the, like the conventional wisdom is that states do have to follow this. And so actually the, it's really interesting because obviously, you know, in an environment where, uh, things are happening, like, I don't know, uh, it's seen as some sort of political indicator that like, I'm not going to wear a mask. I'm like a great American or something, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. like obviously there is a partisanship factor, like, right, right of course. For, for sure. In terms of like what you're willing politically to accept in terms of creating a lockdown order and in terms of creating like public health, unfortunately, in terms of creating like fucking public health measures, basic public health measures. Mm-hmm. Um, but at, at a, like to a more sort of like core problematic, frankly, uh, is that like states do have like just just logically speaking, like and I'll, I'll let like guess Phil, I'll let you cover the sort of mechanics of what you found essentially and how this actually works. But just logically speaking, it makes sense that if, you know, for example, you know, states know that when the economy is quote unquote closed, they have an increasing need to pay their like the state share of unemployment insurance, not even the Mm -hmm. one that we talk about in terms of the federal added benefit, because the CARES Act also neglected to say do something as simple as like cover 100% of unemployment uh, insurance for the duration <laughs> hey, of the pandemic which back. is possible would be very easy to do and then you have like you know increased uh, enrollment in Medicaid you have an increased amount of like people relying on a variety of state programs right and then those programs you know they contribute to they're like not accounted for in what the state was already projecting for its budget so income of people or whether like a variety of whatever, wherever you're getting your tax revenue falls. Right. Mm -hmm. And then the amount of people, uh, you know, like relying on state and local like welfare, Mm -hmm. right. Um, increases. So you have this perfect storm, which is why we talk about how, like, which is why we talk about Medicare for all being like a good counter cyclical measure that states could take to make sure that like healthcare is taken care of. So one of the biggest state line state, like budget line items, Medicaid, the biggest, it, it, yeah, right. like the biggest Medicaid, then schools and prisons. I right. Think. Doesn't, doesn't like shoot up during a pandemic when everyone gets laid off and also needs a ton of, uh, additional health insurance well, because of right. the pandemic. It's, right. Or health insurance utilization, I guess. Sorry. I feel like when we've experienced like our most recent experiences of, of like these sort of like massive um, waves of unemployment came under the circumstances where we were very easy and able to like place blame on uh, the homeowners themselves, let's say, or the <laughs> banks or mm-hmm. whatever. And it did not come, you know, there was a secondary like health crisis in that there, there were deaths of despair associated with the great recession. However, mm-hmm. it was not um, a, a recession or depression congruous with a public health crisis and i feel like in a lot of ways congress has been like half treating both the global health crisis and the like domestic fiscal crisis that we're in like only halfway on both ends and sort of just assuming that that sort of blend is just plenty Mm -hmm. well and correct me if i'm wrong but like most states have passed 
budgets already and it's not really like they can just sort of like go back and decide that they are going to find some new uh untapped tax base that they can use to like close the gaps that they're imposing on themselves yeah no no no. that that, that's a that's that's a good way of thinking about it i mean one thing you would imagine states would do is just sort of um you know, shift around their, their revenue bases. And that, that happened a little bit after the great recession, but I think Mm -hmm. the evidence from the great recession shows that the number one thing that States did, the easiest thing to do, uh, if you don't really care about human lives in any way, (laughs) uh, or if you don't really feel like you're going to be going with this, I mean, or or if you, um, the easiest thing to do, if you don't feel that you're going to be electorally punished for it, which I mean, let's face it. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's not a thing. The, the idea well, that elections are really going to be holding people accountable is, is 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 a limited notion at best. But the easiest thing to do that they just did is is green room style uh, <laughs> uh, slashing <laughs> nice. of budgets. Right. Yeah. I mean, right. It's not even it's not even like Hannibal Lecter, like in a genteel way, eating someone's brain. No, it's totally. Just, it's, it's, it's just literally green like slaughter. Patrick Stewart with like a Doberman being like, go get Medicaid. Yeah, exactly. Uh. <laughs> but, but the, but the funny thing too, is that, is that you're right, Phil, if you have, if you're in, if you're in certain States with a D next to your name, re- regardless of what policies towards austerity you enact in that sort of same year, when there's like lots of other news happening, you probably aren't going to be electorally punished because people don't pay attention to state budgeting news and the D is enough. And not only do people think of it as, you know, like the the popular conception is of it as like a partisan issue. But on top of that, right, you know, the true indictment is really of the entire system that is set up, because basically what we I think what this shows is that the sort of like, you know, the conventional wisdom and how we basically run state budgets and how we really distribute welfare, frankly, in this country innately and how we've been doing it, like how we've been doing it all along, essentially. This is like another uh, indicator. I think that we it's it's one thing to uh, it's one thing to to yell and say, like, oh, no, it's all like the 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 spread is all, all Trump's problem. But when you have a system set up when it's like systemically designed to fail in this mm-hmm. exact way right. and in these exact circumstances, right, then considering what we know of how lifting restrictions does in fact, as much as a bunch of like very a strange coterie of pundits may want to <laughs> suggest that it doesn't lifting restrictions does have a direct correlation to like the r- increased rise in cases again. Right. right? And also how um, those restrictions are lifted as right. well. And how those restrictions are lifted also has a, has a direct contribution to, uh, to an increase in cases. So by that logic, essentially by not saying, okay, the federal government, which creates the money, uh, can just like we make, it make up for all state budget <laughs> shortfalls until the pandemic is over. Like we're going right. to stabilize everything. Right. So instead mm-hmm. of by, by not making big declarative action like that and by creating, uh, uncertainty you know, and by, yeah, exactly. And by creating uncertainty as to whether there will be future action as to whether there will be a cares to as to whether there will be state and federal aid that is in any way sufficient in it's, cares mm-hmm. to right like yeah. you create the situation for states to reopen which then creates the situation for the pandemic to like <laughs> spread as it has into a full blown like it's everywhere national like it's well, practically everywhere uh, national like problem well, right yeah I mean one of the things I just want to like throw us back to like way way back in um, I guess it was probably February or March when we had this the, one of the first conversations about 
coronavirus, I think I said, you know, the number one most important thing going into a global public health crisis or even a local public health crisis is like, you know, confidence in institutions. And and what I think we've seen the only consistent response to coronavirus from the United States in particular has been like a sort of trickle down uncertainty that, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like the federal <laughs> government eats the state government, eats the local government, eats the municipality, mm-hmm. eats the bar that opens, you know, without any guidance or you know, certainty about how to do it, which then like we're seeing in Florida, Rick DeSantis like blamed a hotspot on one bar, like mm-hmm. attributing a bunch of cases to this bar, whether or not like the bar says they're being blamed for it. But like still it's like it's it's well, creating this sort of uh, a feedback loop yeah. of uncertainty, which then also like as we've seen DeSantis do gives him the ability to cover his own inaction, which caused this bar to open in the first. Like it's still his fault. Whether it originated in this bar, it's still DeSantis's fault. But he's that the bar was open at all, which you know it's it's plausible. But blaming this individual bar and saying like it's not, you know, no, no, I I think um, it's like important to go back and think about what was fucked up here. Um, So. The CARES Act had money for state and local governments, right? Right. Kinda. I think it had about five hundred billion, uh, if I'm if I'm if I'm not uh, mistaken. Right. But if you go around and look state to state, locality to locality, what you're going to see is a lot of money that was allocated. It's just not being used. Right. Right. And so you got to ask the question: Well, why is it not being used? And it's not being used because. This the sort of logic of austerity. Congress didn't have that much money, didn't appropriate enough money really to compensate for for state and local revenue shortfalls. And what they were possibly politically worried about, oh, that might be giving them too much credit. Uh, but they, I think, were worried possibly about the idea that states would commit this money in in ways that were not directed specifically towards the uh, like mm-hmm. dealing with the pandemic, and that that would somehow blow back on them, which is I think an absurd thing. Um, but so they put these tight restrictions on what state and local governments could use the money for. And mm-hmm. the point is you can't just use the money to, uh, deal with revenue shortfalls. You have to use the money in right. ways that are specifically sort of targeted to crisis, uh, response. And the point is, yeah. So now we have like a lot of money sitting around, which quite unfortunately helps to like support this ridiculous allegation that, uh, oh, we don't need to actually commit more. We've already committed so much. Right. Mm -hmm. It was like earmarked for new pandemic specific stuff, as opposed to like a state can use this to like plug existing shortfalls in Medicaid. Yeah, exactly. That's the point. Yeah. You, you you can't. um, And the other thing is too, that's just the, that's just the sort of emergency funding. The other thing Mm -hmm. that Congress didn't do is it didn't at any point say like, we're going to really go, beyond what we did in the great recession to help states pay for Medicaid, right? What Mm -hmm. they did Mm -hmm. is effectively kind of in, in real terms, less than what they did during the great recession to help states uh, pay for Medicaid. Um, And so like, that's one part of it. But the other thing that I find like fascinating is that when you look at what state and local governments were demanding, I think at some point they just got so disheartened or discouraged that they stopped making uh, really big Hmm. asks. Um, Mm -hmm. and you know, it's not like you're seeing state and local government saying, Hey, the federal government should cover hundred percent of Medicaid, which, Mm -hmm. you know, in the 1980s was something that like totally like moderate policy wonk types as well as state and local governments were saying. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) and so I I think part of it is like, 
<laughs> yeah, and I, th- I think that like part of it is we've like many people who have like been schooled and professionalized and are credentialed in all of these ways. They've committed this like cardinal sin, which was which is that they sort of see pieces of legislation and public policy generally like as little islands of stuff (laughs) rather than one big sort of structural morass, which this is like the thing that we clearly need to do is completely flip uh, the relationship between federal and state state governments cannot fund. They, they have structural problems under the current arrangements that they, they have created for themselves by limiting themselves fiscally. Uh, but they cannot fund things that people need when there is a crisis, which under late capitalism, there assuredly will be. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> so like this is the, the, we need a completely different way of doing this, because otherwise we're going to see things that make, you know, the 2008 what happened in, in cities like Vallejo or Stockton mm-hmm. uh, after 2008, which is like, yeah, the lights in certain parts of cities funding for that just got cut. Right. Oh, yeah. Mosquito mm-hmm. abatement. <laughs> uh, just gets cut. So you had outbreaks of West Nile. I mean, oh, yeah, this sure. is and, and then yeah. frankly, uh, what we talked about last week, which is funding for uh, state and local public health got cut mm-hmm. after right. the Great Recession. And that's where we are now. So like at some point, if you don't at, like very clearly advocate for blowing up this entire <laughs> arrangement, you are screwing yourself because right. you are creating the conditions for your own like future you know, absurdity of your actions. Right. I think that there's like a mentality of consensus, right? That like drives our, our political narrative forward that is like based on something completely arbitrary. And we're all just like pretending that it's still real and that we have to be treating state budgets like this. And we have to be funding education like this for some, you know, balancing the budget so that we'll what all get into heaven or something like who's at the <laughs> gate? St. Michael won't let us in Peter. if we don't have St. Peter won't let us in if we have He's a deficit. Jewish. She shouldn't know who's, who Peter is. <laughs> you know, like like it's it's absurd. What is what is eliminating the deficit supposed to get us? I thought that Christians were supposed to help people and be generous or something to get into <laughs> is heaven. Is that the Nancy Not, Pelosi line? Yeah, yeah. like Christians are also apparently supposed to have specific dollar amounts in mind when they're uh, <laughs> before they actually <laughs> design a package. Apparently, um, I mean, no, I blame this all on the 1974 Budget and uh, Empowerment Act. Um, I mean, this is where the idea that you have to even have a single budget and then evaluated based on its, you know, evaluate the deficit at all uh, comes from. I mean, before that, you just had 13 appropriations bills. There was no such thing as the budget, really. Uh, it was like it's a fiction that we created in 1974. Um, wow. But uh, <laughs> but I mean, that and that's part of austerity. But the other part of it is this sort of broader political economy that we've created uh, since then. Um, but I think, I mean, the, this particular case, I could explain it in two ways. One is this is the very cynical, um, like electoral politics watcher explanation, which is that you don't, sadly, you can win elections even in a pandemic without giving people anything. Um, but, but, but instead by sort of managing your coalition, by telling them the right things, by, um, sort of maintaining constituency sort of relations. And even some people have looked at the budget bills that are coming out now and said like, okay, here's, here's how they're sort of trying to manage this, uh, coalition, um, you know, in in preparation uh, for the elections, but you know, you can win elections like that. And, and I think the other thing is that like, uh, I think Democrats have, have learned that, um, you can, 
or win an election narrowly or lose it narrowly. And it sort of doesn't by, by not make, but in, in any case that the goal of politics is not making mass appeals to right. things that people mm-hmm. need. Um, and I, th- I think that, um, that, that is the sort of very sad, sad sort of, uh, logic, uh, yeah. of this. I mean, and I think, I think that's perfectly illustrated in a way in, I think, I, I think there are kind of like two weird political maneuvers that, uh, seem to be like, uh, almost inverse of each other that were interesting to me that's happened in like the last week. One is, one is that, you know, they've been like Republicans in the white house have been signaling very, very strongly. Like we're not, we're not doing anything more, et cetera, et cetera. We're not doing anything more. And so that's kind of resulted. I think in some ways in like Democrats doing this kind of, you know, the, the Democrat thing, which is to automatically say like, okay, well, we know that they're not going to do that. So let's, let's propose a compromise. <laughs> right. Um, you know, the, the classic thing to that, the, whatever the classic contemporary democratic party thing, the but, opening bit of shooting yourself in the foot. And so that, then that <laughs> allows that, then that allows, uh, you know, Steve Mnuchin to go out today and say like, Oh, uh, you know, now we're talking about like, uh, when and how targeted the next round of $1,200 checks is. And the Democrats have already been like signaling like, well, you know, we're going to have to like cut it down a little bit. And then on the other, but, but then the, the, the inverse thing, which is so funny to me is the, um, the whole thing, how like basically, um, I guess a bunch of White House economic advisors within the Trump administration are like pissed off because Joe Biden released a like nationalist pro like buy America like America first economic plan before them. Um, <laughs> it's like Nazis get really jealous. I'm telling you. Well, I'm just yeah. saying. It's like uh, I mean, and the, you know, these, these are these are complementary. It's like in yeah. some ways, like you'll I don't know. It's just funny that the Democrats are like ahead of. I don't know that this is particularly like useful to our conversation. So maybe we should just move on. But like, you know, that they're ahead on the, uh, let's make sure that it's like American jobs, American by, by American and behind on like actually supporting people living through a fucking pandemic. Build back better. Is that what Biden said? Biden's build back better plan. They, uh, they say, I'm going to quote, this is, and then we can move on, but quote from one of these plans that they released today. U.S. manufacturing was the arsenal of democracy in World (laughs) War II and must be the arsenal of American prosperity today. Uh, Why it gotta be again? Okay, uh, he's hired somebody. He's hired somebody to to write these things that has learned about politics by watching the movie Dave uh, (laughs) from like whatever 1998. It's like that. That's a vision of politics where like what a president is supposed to do is propose some sort of manufacturing plan. Yeah. Uh, You know, whatever you do, it's like you just go, uh, oh, we're in a crisis. Okay, Folder A. Right. What's in folder A? It's just a copy of the VHS of Dave. (laughs) (laughs) And then then the rest of the stuff in folder A, frankly, is what is in the rest of this particular plan that I was referencing, which is 24 negative mentions of China, including an assertion that China's government has, quote, engaged in an assault on American creativity. So basically (laughs) they hired someone. How do you feel about that, Artie, as an artist? (laughs) Do you feel it's been an assault on your creativity? I don't like uh, my... uh, uh, you know, my profession and livelihood being leveraged uh, as as a vehicle to voice a interest in nuking China. I'm not really a fan of that. So <laughs> I they're they've hired someone essentially to take the American carnage speech and punch it up a little right. bit. Yeah. If Jed Bartlett did American Carnage, right. then what would Build it sound back like? better sounds like McKinsey to make America great again. Just yeah. saying. Phil, do you think you could maybe give us a little bit of a 
deeper breakdown, now that we've sort of like had a good time talking around like where we're at right now, I'd really love to sort of get into actually some of the meat of your analysis, because I do think that that 9% figure is pretty interesting. And what you looked at is, I think, really also quite indicative of the things that people should be watching going forward in the next couple of weeks to sort of get an idea of like, maybe what's going on better than what you can read in the news. Yeah. I mean, the the basic thing is, and I, I don't even think we need to stake much of the, much of this like argument on my analysis. You don't even need much of an analysis to, to do True. this. Just go look up the news, look up the news in your state about how people in the state legislature or the governor are thinking, or even your mayor um, <laughs> yeah. or county executive are thinking about the trade-offs between public health and uh, their own ability to run government. And I think that that's like, it's an important thing because th- again, the standard stories are uh, well, reopening is really about evil Republicans who don't care about people. That's like the one story. Um, and then the other story is like, it's e- the evil business lobby that doesn't care about people. Um, and I'm not like trying to say that, that, uh, there aren't partisan (laughs) partisan interest group politics matter. They obviously matter. Right. Um, and and like, you know, just in terms of what people believe even about the pandemic, there are effects there. I would never deny that. However, there's one thing that's constant across all of the States, Mm -hmm. which is that if States don't have revenue that primarily comes either from or some combination of sales tax, income tax, property Mm -hmm. tax, other kinds of taxes, corporate income tax, and then charges, right? So special fees and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, they can't do the things uh, for which they claim to be a government at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and again, that is not because uh, of something that's like baked into the earth. States have imposed those constraints on themselves. They're completely reversible. We could tomorrow decide that we didn't have to balance the budget or that we could uh, take on uh, a lot of debt uh, in the states. Uh, that, that's something we could decide tomorrow. And we probably mm-hmm. should if Congress isn't going to bail us out. Right. And uh, or if Congress isn't going to like act to like protect the semblance that we have any kind of government at all, um, which is really what it is, not a bailout. Um, so then the question is, you know, what does it look like when you are a state and you rely a lot on one source of taxation that is really susceptible to something like a drop in economic activity, something like the income tax, right? Mm -hmm. And so when you include a bunch of other variables in the analysis, right, is the governor Republican? Um, Is the state sort of a pro-Trump state? Um, Is the state experiencing an increase in coronavirus cases? Uh, is the state, um, uh, you know, a big state or a small state, uh, things like that. Uh, mm-hmm. the, you still see a huge effect when states rely more on the income tax. Um, they are more likely to everything else equal, uh, reopen. And the economic logic of that is like pretty clear. Uh, mm-hmm. if you totally. don't have a, uh, an ability to raise money again, to do the really basic stuff that states do, um, you know, and it's the stuff that really matters in a pandemic. Uh, are there going to be people there when you have to make a call about your unemployment? 
Uh, are there going to be people there when you have to make a call about uh, even the, the taxes that you are filing uh, for the right. state? Really, really basic stuff. And, and I think already state and local employment has plunged, right? Mm-hmm. They've done huge layoffs uh, as a result of the uh, crisis. And like that has, it's important to note, like that has such downstream consequences because sometimes state and local governments realize or they think that they realize that they could actually do more with less, uh, you know, by not having public employees. And then what happens later is that they end up needing those people and then they have to contract out for the work and then they're charged double. Uh, that's like, that's the sort of long-term thing that doesn't make any sense. But at any rate in the immediate term, that sort of dependence on revenue that is not being generated during a pandemic means that you're more likely to do things like, you know, proceed with reopening, even if you have an increase in cases, right. And we're seeing that obviously in States, um, uh, that, that, uh, are having an increase in cases. I think, uh, Indiana is sort of one example, uh, where there's been an, you know, it's, it's now a hotspot state again and they're reopening and it's pretty clear. Like state policymakers have said as much, they're like, Oh good. We're able to get back those revenues because we're reopening. Um, so there's like all kinds of evidence out there uh, to support this. Um, and again, this is something that, you know, there are other ways out of this. Uh, and I think the the point about like local currencies is a good one. There are other ways of creating money. You don't have to necessarily rely on these uh, these revenues. But I think state policymakers and obviously Congress are so like intellectually constrained. But what they think is the natural order of things uh, that's preventing them from from dealing with this. And, you know, the result is it's not like by reopening you're going to just immediately net, you're still going to make cuts. That's the, uh, that's the irony, right? right? Mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, it, it's not like by reopening, you're immediately going to go back to this, the old school economy that you had. You're not. <laughs> well, yeah. well, but when it's, you, it's but worse. I was just going to say, I mean, when you, when you're a state policymaker and you don't have any imagination and you have one lever to pull, right. And it's just shits, you know, seemingly getting worse on your balance sheets and there's just a lever. You're, you're going to pull the lever regardless of what the actual, outcome is going to be obviously you're still going to lose a shitload of revenue well, you're going to like increase cases and then and then you're going to have to close down which is going to lead to a bunch more people be going becoming unemployed and you're just going to make things worse for yourself but it's really right. hard to not pull the fucking lever you know i mean that's the, that's the thing though it's like uh, the the logic is even uh the, the logic is even kind of more absurd and and worse actually because not not only is it uh, okay, we, we push to reopen because we happens. think that that is like we push to reopen because we think that that's the only way to to like mm-hmm. patch the budget hole or whatever or re mm-hmm. like or reintroduce state revenue. But then by doing it prematurely and making it so that cases can spread faster, yeah. right? Uh, by being reopened, then you long term create even more of a situation where you're going yeah. to have like incredibly right. deleterious cascading economic effects and you're actually going to you know again long term make your fucking budget problem that you can't get that you can't like imagine your way outside of uh much like considerably worse i think here's yeah. the thing that, yeah. that worries me also is that so maybe we'll get into this in a little bit but i've been doing a lot of reading just watching the studies as they come out, a bunch of them are in pre-pub, so they're not peer-reviewed yet, but there have been a lot of really good studies that have been running simultaneously a lot out of like Yale, Harvard, in the Boston area, because Boston had such a bad outbreak, a lot done in New York, just really sort of seeing like 
what our testing capacity is, how effective tests are, like what it translated to in the hotspots over two months. You know, what we're seeing is decision making now by state and local governments in terms of what they're going to invest in with COVID preparation, but we haven't even really figured out what the best way to spend that money is yet. That's what's starting to make me also very anxious is that like these these already cash-strapped state and local governments are also now making decisions on how they're going to spend their, their meager money on public health as we're sort of figuring out that like maybe all that PPE that we bought is like expired, which is happening in some cases. Um, like maybe all of these like contract tracing apps that we just paid McKinsey to make don't work, you know, like, (laughs) (laughs) um, and do we even know like if contract tracing is totally effective yet? Well, it depends on how it's implemented and the studies that are like figuring that out are, um, like being finalized now, but like a lot of States have already locked it in. Mm -hmm. It's like the thing that I, I sent you guys earlier today about Rhode Island. There was this glowing interview with the governor of Rhode Island and in it, they were like, you know, in the sort of like uh, the, the paragraphs in the beginning sort of setting her up and what she'd done, you know, she did a uniquely American thing and she collaborated. She made unique public-private partnerships, right? <laughs> so she she called Salesforce and Salesforce, she was oh, like... Salesforce. She called Salesforce and made and apparently forced them to make like a contact tracing app for free. And then uh, it's CVS, I guess, is the largest employer in the state. So well, they're, you based know, there. they're based there. It's it's, you know, so CVS apparently then like stepped in to help the state with um, testing. And what you see actually is like, oh, actually, like Rhode Island did everything that the Boston studies are saying we might have to do, which is like weekly testing, isolation, making sure, you know, we can actually see who someone's interacted with if they've, um, you know, been asymptomatic for maybe the past week or so right and we've now caught them and they've they've got symptoms like but these are all like we're automatically at a disadvantage if we're relying on having to seek out these partnerships instead of like funding public health that's actually a really good point because i think you know there's there's been all of this sort of like speculation like okay is this obviously we're in a crisis moment this this could be a critical juncture for like major changes in the government i think a lot of people are speculating you're like, oh, maybe this is like, this is the moment where finally we realize there's like some sort of something wrong with capitalism or even say even more modestly, like <laughs> there's something wrong with the way that we've designed like the fiscal, uh, uh, fiscal regime in the United States. But the other very distinct possibility is that rather than getting like welfare state, you know, mm-hmm. 2.11 for work groups, uh, <laughs> we, even, um, we get like Zuck world. In oh, which, yeah. oh yeah, but by, by through demonstrating that uh, again for reasons that were completely preventable and which we could change in another way, that the government isn't able to respond to this, it creates this. I mean, you know, I was uh, listened to this thing yesterday, which is like a how are states how are state governments like doing in the crisis, and the panelists on the thing were like a construction lobbyist, a lobbyist from Microsoft, and then like somebody from Alec. Uh, and it's like, oh yes, these are the people, these are the people who are thinking about, you know, how they can say Microsoft, especially they're like, ah, yes. How can we step in to deliver just in time solutions when in as invariably is the case, uh, our, uh, public structures, which we have not financed at all or believe that we couldn't, uh, don't do, uh, what they plainly cannot do without money. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. 
No, exactly. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, unfortunately, the uh, as we're seeing with Medicare Advantage, like the privatization is probably more likely. We were already on a trend towards that in a lot of areas yeah. before mm-hmm. this. Walgreens um, is starting primary care offices. Walmart mm-hmm. is becoming an insurer. Uh, uh, B- Best Buy was going to do senior yeah. uh, wellness checks. Well, but but this is, I, I think, I think um, as an extension you know, be, of Geek Squad. Sorry. I, I think <laughs> like, you. you know, the, the point about Zuckworld is a really good, uh, is a really good example because you know that, you know, someone like Andrew Cuomo is reading, you know, this like some profile of the governor of Rhode Island and and being like, fuck, I gotta get in touch with Survey Monkey. <laughs> like you right, know what I mean? Exactly. Um like well, I mean and you know, since B didn't mention it, like Survey Monkey was the next company on that oh, litany right. of I forgot like, about Survey Monkey. That's one of the grossest ones in the list. Well, How could I forget and the, about and that? And the one? funniest. It brings us into I mean it's literally like a in a way it's like the easiest dystopian future corporate world joke that you could do it's like it's like idiocracy or something it's you know what i mean still not as good it's um, still not as good as the soup tube oh yeah but <laughs> i mean I've, i guess yeah well i was gonna say we really need to normalize state and local politicians telling corporations who are offering partnerships to to fuck off well but this is the thing it's like what what other you know there's a reason that they go to cvs because cvs is located in rhode island or whatever right and so you Mm -hmm. it's the the entire like the entire way that the the system is orchestrated is set up to you know incentivize that the reaction will be like a public private partnership because that is and it's logical it's like you because you're essentially saying like well we'll we'll, we're going to spend this money but it's going to go back into our economy etc which is the same actually argument as like biden's buy american right exactly Mm -hmm. um and you know trump's uh blood and soil initiative or even you know like is that um, an initiative Sure. <laughs> no, I don't know. I'm, you know, you know what I, I mean. Know. But the um, probably, yeah. So I guess you know, Phil. I mean, having uh, looked at this, or I guess all of you guys, but like having looked well, at this, Phil's what do we had think? his nose and data. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, what does I feel like? What does this mean for like we've we've kind of danced around this this talk about um, you know kind of like condemning it like systemically and showing that this is sort of like it is self reinforced and set up to create conditions like this. But like I don't know. I don't know what I guess either what's some like evidence of that or how can we like escape it? Yeah, I mean, I think it will naturally occur to to people if you're like interested in politics at, at all. There's like probably an issue you care about. Right. Like for us, like I guess, it's, you know, Medicare for all would be like one thing or, you know, uh, uh, climate change or schools or, you know, whatever. Take your pick. Right. There, there are things that you care about. Mm-hmm. It will not occur to you necessarily. And it's totally fine that. This is what we're, what we've been talking about is actually in certain ways more important and affects everything that we do, which is like the basic fiscal uh, structure of American government, which needs to end. Uh, <laughs> and, and it's the thing that, you know, because we expect states to do so much and they're structurally prevented from doing so because they have limits on their budget, limits on uh, the amount of money that they uh, can run as a deficit, um, and by the federal government's own just sort of deliberate ignorance of these problems. Like, one thing to focus on that doesn't necessarily seem sexy is we need a uh, complete revision of the relationship between federal and state governments. State governments should, even if you don't support Medicare for All, which, why wouldn't you? Um, you, you should at the very least, you know, say there's no reason why we should depend on these ridiculous state finances to fund Medicaid. 
There's no reason why in a pandemic school districts, which are constrained by uh, completely uh, arbitrary boundaries and property tax, uh, property tax shelters Mm -hmm. uh, should be depending on these, these paltry sources of revenue to do things like, I don't know, buy hand sanitizer uh, or have, have a different sort of uh, school day or whatever. If you want kids to go uh, back to school IRL, I mean, there's, but there's no reason why any of these things should be so. Um, And the only thing that makes them so is that we have proceeded with this fiction that states can't spend more than they take in or that the federal government has no real responsibility uh, to states. And there are plenty of countries where there are federal systems, but it doesn't work like this at all. This is a a product of a real lack of uh, sort of attention uh, or imagination. And if we want things to change and we want to actually get through this in, in some reasonable way without going to Zuck world, they're, they're <laughs> going to have to. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I really feel like avoiding Zuck world should be priority number one. Also, it's a real states, thing. Cities, it's, it funny. it's a real thing. Yeah. If states and cities, uh, you know, if they're not going to, if like states and cities are not going to get support in the, ter- in the form of federal dollars and they also don't do something like, you know, work that like, you know, choose to work outside of the confines of austerity or like create a local currency, for example, um, as you know, as one method that mm-hmm. we've like talked about, then more than likely what is going to fill that void is probably like Facebook bucks or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, or also or states like, are going to go into default and then banks are going to run states and yeah. cities just like they ran New York in the late seventies and early eighties. Totally. Mm-hmm. Shout out well, Kim Phillips. Fine. And maybe, maybe this is a good way to sort of round out the episode. Maybe we should talk about some of the research I've been reading about COVID because it might, yeah. it might really set up yeah. the stakes here um, sure. as to why sort of the urgency of what, what Phil was saying to sort of cap off um, that first conversation. Yeah. Well, and to draw from what you said earlier, B, which is that like, one really unfortunate thing, especially when you limit what states and cities and other localities can spend on treatment prevention or on just like basic sustenance of their people, obviously, but on, you know, things like preparing for, uh, like future cases, et cetera. Like this is still very much allocating resources right now. Right. So the first study I want to get into is not actually a study, but couple of them and then a letter that was sent to the WHO by yeah, the um, other WHO news this week. Yeah, I think it was 237 clinicians, infectious disease physicians, epidemiologists, engineers, aerosol scientists all together published a letter um, in the Clinical Infectious Disease Journal, um, which it is like the biggest one um, mm-hmm. to specifically to the WHO saying, please please, you need to start including aerosolized transmission um, in your materials. Right. Um, so <laughs> it's the the sort of, have you guys heard about this at all? Like, Yeah, the- this is the letter that people are talking about, right? <laughs> so, yeah, so, so yeah, rude of little. all those scientists to ask the WHO to stop cancel culture. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So if there's, if there's crossover on the signatories of that letter. I don't want to meet them. Anyway, oh, God. Oh, God. There isn't. I promise you. I checked. Um, so checked. I thought it would be funny if it was true. So oh, I yeah, checked. That's true. Um, the WHO is like, should I reply with a concrete example or stick to my commitments to you? 
I see you, Maddie. Anyway, <laughs> you can delete tweets all you want. <laughs> Anyway, um, oh, I'm all glad, right, all right, all I'm, right, glad all we, right. I'm glad we worked that in. All right, let's okay, go. So, okay, um, so these researchers, this group of 237 researchers, are quite frustrated that key agencies such as the CDC and World Health Organization are not heeding their advice, which is that they they need to be including a possible. Um, they need to be including guidelines about transmissions in settings with close contact and poor ventilation because right. of aerosolized transmission. Now, okay. So we don't have a lot of evidence about anything with COVID, right? Like we don't know very much about it at all. Uh, we don't have a lot of evidence that like totally supports transmission from touching surfaces, right? Mm-hmm. right. But it's in the WHO's recommendations right. regardless. And that is and like, it is better to be more safe than sorry, right. really, honestly. And that's for a very good reason, right? Yeah. And the reason is that um, we don't know very much about coronavirus, but we do know what it does to people. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which we'll get into in a moment. Um, the other thing. Right. So the so the prudent the prudent public health, global public health decision, right, would be maximum preventative preparedness, mm-hmm. maximum mm-hmm. protection, and an international effort to distribute supplies to countries unable to make those purchases themselves. Yeah. Right? And so far they've treated it like, um, I think the, the, the casual assumption, we kind of talked about this in a recent episode where we were talking about that study about like, um, you know, looking specifically at droplet distance. So as yeah. spreads, as spread through droplets, um, you know, the like distances that they can be shown to in a, you know, in a manufactured like lab setting, uh, in droplets through the air, um, which is different from aerosolized, which is different from airborne, but like carrying mm-hmm. droplets through the air, like, you know, that that shows that even the early recommendations of like, oh, maintain six foot distance are, you know, in, right. not not enough. Really. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, so, we've, you know, we've talked about this, but this kind of like actually, it, I think, goes kind of a bit further, which right. is it, it proves that like you have to remember always, I think, that the the initial guidelines that were released for example, are, were based on just blanket assumptions, right? Uh, blanket assumptions like, on an upper respiratory infectious disease. Exactly. Um, right. Not on the specifics because not, not enough specifics itself. are still known. Right, exactly. Right. We're still figuring that out. And, and so the WHO has a very hardline position on aerosolized, which is kind of weird. Their, their position has softened a little bit after this letter, but it is still that uh, aerosolized transmission is possible during medical procedures, and unlikely otherwise. So they're not making so that what that actually affects though is like what mask recommendations countries implement. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. the downstream effect of the uh, of the aerosolized debate. It also impacts group size in buildings, right. ventilation requirements, ways that you would need to rep- retrofit uh, air filters and and HVAC systems mm-hmm. to include uh, something like UV lights to sanitize it. So mm-hmm. this also lends a little bit more information as to why we can have these sort of super spreader spaces like a bar or a restaurant, right? Which Mm -hmm. we're seeing like anecdotal direct evidence of. Well, actually it's interesting because the reason that I guess one of the reasons that um, some of the like scientific community started looking at whether it could spread as an airborne uh, virus, uh, like whether it could spread through aerosolized was it aerosolized particles? Basically? Yeah, so it's just yeah, like amb- could, ambient air in a room, right? Right. Yeah. So whether, as opposed to somebody speaking directly to you, as opposed to like a, a yeah. like a little flick of like liquid out of your mouth or something, yeah. like literally just like These aerosolized. Are particles that, and this is you know, not like smaller particles, basically, right? Right. And this is not to say that like you should be thinking about this as like 
you open your apartment door and the air is just COVID. Like, don't don't <laughs> think about it this way. Right. If there's the someone co- if there's someone coughing in your hallway or outside your door, like not opening the door for 35, 45 minutes isn't the worst thing in the world well, to do. But it's, a, it's a good reason to maybe make sure that even if you're like, even if you're good about like wearing a mask outside just right. to be safe, make sure you're also like wearing it. If you have, if you're in a building with an elevator, like make sure to wear your mask when you're in the elevator Especially alone. the elevator. Especially because it's yeah. a small, anyway. But this, so what I, what, sorry, what I wanted to jump in just earlier and then I'd like to hear you your take on this be but is that one of the reasons that people um were looking into this in the first place was that like there there were a couple of events which like appeared to people studying this that they would not they were not actually likely to be uh droplet based um super spreader events Mm -hmm. um things like a situation in uh in seattle there was a choir performance um Mm -hmm. and a ton of people got um got ill um which would be in in circumstances i guess that were relatively consistent with if something was airborne um you know it would just move through the small room and be like carried on the air in the yeah, small room. I've heard a easily. lot of experts say the and absolute worst case scenario that you would be thinking of is like a karaoke bar where you have individual yeah. rooms singing <laughs> past shared equipment plus drinking. Well, think about and all the, the think about all the um, cases tied to recording studios, music mm-hmm. recording studios, all mm-hmm. the musicians right. who have right, gotten right, it. Right, right, I mean, mics are dirty. Yeah, my, I mean, not only mics are dirty, but you know, recording booths. Yeah, small, you know, small anyway, booths. And yeah, then, my mic, just, my and mic that I'm recording into right now is disgusting. <laughs> Thanks for sharing. Sorry, <laughs> but the uh, the um, but then one other case. Sorry, and then I'll again turn it over. But the w- then one other case is um, uh, as B mentioned with air conditioning is like researchers used uh, tracer gas to show aerosols being a likely a possible case of spread in a restaurant in uh, Guangzhou mm-hmm. um, in China. So yeah, I'd like to read you guys. This is one of the reasons it was looked into. I'd like to read you guys a quote from the letter. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this is what the researchers say in their commentary. We are concerned that the lack of recognition of the risk of airborne transmission of COVID-19 and the lack of clear recommendations on the control measures against the airborne virus will have significant consequences. People may think that they are fully protected by adhering to current recommendations, but in fact, additional airborne interventions are needed for further reduction of infection risk. So here is the problem. And this is the sort of trickle-down uncertainty that we were talking about in our, in our sort of main topic for today is, you know, to control the pandemic, we need to control all of every means of infection, right? And mm-hmm. we need to, we don't know very much about this virus, so we need to be sort of assuming the worst and worst case scenario is we are overprepared, right? But Mm -hmm. because of like something I was saying earlier, there's sort of this thing that the WHO has been doing in the way that they've been treating this. They've been sort of saying that like they're, um, they're concerned that if they make these recommendations, though, again, there's the same amount of scientific evidence supporting the recommendations that lead to hand washing, right? But if they make these recommendations that like certain countries will not be able to effectively manage supplies or, you know, that um, this is sort of a, a paternalistic decision that the WHO made about, you know, how they were going to message that was based on an idea about, you know, controlling public health, but they've, but they've neglected to 
mention that their first set of recommendations, which a lot of them have have changed, right, were based on the idea of a general upper respiratory virus. So Mm -hmm. they've created for themselves like one of the worst possible things they can do, which is like incredible confusion as to their expertise. And we really don't need that right now. And I I think one of the things, too, is like if... (laughs) If the WHO like says that it wants proof for it to be airborne, right, but it refuses to have any of the other um, criteria that it's recommending have the same burden of proof, like what does that say of about right. the entire well, set of recommendations? It, right. It reveals this very um, uncomfortable reality that public health surveillance and management is this really is a co-production of science and politics that science science is drawn into this political arena of uh like risk management and the and in this case geopolitics Mm -hmm. uh because what is the who but it's member states i mean it has no power to bind its member states to these things um and and the member states can say can like wave off its it's, oh yeah uh, which then then reduces it study that you know yeah exactly which then reduces its power as well Right. Um, right. Or, or reduce. I right. mean, it relies so much on this sort of sense of authority. And I agree, B, like, I think this when it's not just uh, governments, but uh, people within governments who are, you know, public health uh, officials, scientists rely on your the credibility of your advice and they begin mm-hmm. to see it as tainted right. in some way, then, you know, then that that does sort of create it does create some sort of doubt. And this is a moment where, like, there's so much that's feeding on doubt. Yeah. Like doubt is yeah. such a malicious little currency because doubt means we don't do doubt means uh, you can say, Oh, it's not really, I mean, doubt just fuels the furnace of saying it's not really that big of a deal. Right. Right. Yeah. No. And, and there's, this is not the first time during the pandemic itself that clinicians and researchers have like been very critical of the WHO's reluctance to update their guidelines. Like a good example is the CDC uh, released recommendations to use masks when you can't do social distancing, both indoors and out on April 3rd. It -hmm. took until June 5th for the WHO to release the same recommendation. And there is absolutely no reason that um, there should have been a delay. Right. And, Mm -hmm. And the delay represents an institutional attitude, which is actively undermining the ability of the institution to do its very important job right now. And it's it's a problem. And and what these researchers say is that, like, it's not totally clear to them why the WHO is being so slow, but that they're very, very concerned, which is why they've done sent this letter right but right. I, I do think that like for for anyone like i know we get a lot of questions and emails which is why i really wanted to talk about this on the show like do i really actually have to wear a mask like if i'm hanging out <laughs> with my friend in a park no no i'm saying like if i'm hanging out with a, my yeah, friend yeah, in a, a park gets, it's yeah. not windy um it's not humid it's sunny and hot we're eight feet apart do i have to wear a mask and i'm like you need to because yeah. i can't tell you that you're why wouldn't you right that's my (laughs) real question why wouldn't you be wearing a mask because we don't actually know i can't tell you anything for sure right um most researchers would probably recommend doing it anyways is it going to hurt you to do it anyways absolutely not right Mm -hmm. (laughs) could Mm -hmm. it save people's lives definitely definitely a, a likely probability so like if we don't set up the conceptual framework socially for like people and regardless of country or or nationality to be thinking about the pandemic 
proactively, right? Mm -hmm. Then Mm -hmm. we are at such a disadvantage. And this is exactly where we are. We have this austerity thinking that's bled into how we're going to determine what public health recommendations a global organization is going to make based on their arbitrary decisions about what resources countries do or don't have from their perspective, Right. Right. That's absurd. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, if you know, under the best case scenario, if we got to the end of this pandemic and 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 had the realization that like, oh, my goodness, like we did all these like extra things that it turns out, like after doing a bunch of research, like we perhaps didn't need to do or needed to do differently. But like the fact that we did them anyway was prudent. And then we saved a bunch of people's lives because we weren't like, you know, just ridiculously uh, sort of like callous or 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 flippant about adhering to to mask wearing or things like that. That would be great, but in all likelihood, we're going to come out of this if we do come out of this with the complete fucking opposite, being like, huh, wow, we really should have uh, really sh- really should have told people to wear masks sooner, huh? Huh? We should have. You know? I I do think it's telling that there is a delay between. Uh, you know, obviously there's always a delay in like with, with stuff like COVID cause stuff gets implemented and then there's, there's a natural, like because of the, the time span of the infection, there is a natural like delay in the shift of cases. But I right. do think it's telling that like, yeah. you know, we went, New York did a bunch, did like lockdown measures. Right. And cases continued. And it wasn't until like a couple weeks after the mask order in New York, really, that the cases started going right. down. Right, actually, you know, which just as anecdotal information. I, I am going to throw a third. I'm going to yeah, throw a third study actually into the mix that supports this a Do little it. bit. Actually, this is also preprint. It's um, by Laramore et al. coming out in MedRxiv probably in the next couple of weeks. But this was a um, a study done. This was the one I was talking about earlier today, done in Boston about mm-hmm. testing. So this one was done at, at Harvard and they they wanted to see basically like w- w- the efficacy of tests based on their sensitivity and how that correlated to like, you know, effective testing procedures and and changes to the curve, right? Mm-hmm. Um so they they compared a couple different tests that were done like basically um everything from sort of your most simple and least sensitive test um like a nose swab test to uh incredibly incredibly sensitive you know um qpcr like test that takes like two weeks you know to come back and stuff like that and you know what they found is that you know uh the less sensitive tests are not great <laughs> at finding COVID. Yeah, know. yeah. <laughs> which was just, yeah. Which makes sense because COVID which is, is sneaky, as well, we'll discuss in the next study. Which weirdly is both known, but also not popularly known because, yeah, it's you not know, popular. Get, no, it's not popular. I hear, known. I hear people, t- right. Gosh. I mean, it's like, uh, shout out, shout out to Michael Cannon who tweeted at me the other day. Like, uh, Mr. Michael Cannon, like end all public support for health insurance. Uh, but it tweeted me like, well, yeah, we could have just fired a lot of people at the FDA and then we would have had better testing regime. All those people well, at the no, FDA. But, okay, but the, this is the thing. It's like, yeah, exactly. So like here we know Good take like, away. the Self death panel knows away. that it's that like these the test efficacy like across the board is like not great. However, you know, broadly speaking, and I'm sure like everyone listening to this have has like friends or, or uh, let's say relatives who will, will say like, oh, yeah, I got the got the coronavirus test. It's negative. I'm good. Like, 
good good to go like no cool sorry. what objects and people have you <laughs> interacted with since then what yeah. rooms have you passed right. through this still, is still being careful right no why are you fucking kidding me <laughs> yeah <laughs> right? like so so what they found actually is that like if you were to implement blanket testing of, of, a, of a population of, let's say, like a, a state, right? Um, mm-hmm. Everyone gets tested once every seven days. It doesn't even matter if it's a sensitive test or not. It can be a very unsensitive test, but it's sort of the frequency and the universality of the testing, which is effective, right? right? That they right. found that that coupled with, you know, isolating people who do test positive, regardless, mm-hmm. again, of the sensitivity, but frequent testing, mm-hmm. you know, Facilitating social distancing and stay-at-home orders, plus effective use of well-fitting masks by the majority of the population, that you can actually do a lot to really control the curve, shall we say. But even if you had a more sensitive test, right, even if they, you know, the the, the very unsensitive tests are, are super effective, but even if you had a really effective, sensitive Tests that you were giving every person in the population once every two weeks, it would virtually be every like fourteen days every instead fourteen of every seven. instead of yeah. seven. You're you're not even getting close to having anywhere near the effect that you would have from testing every seven days everyone. Um, mm-hmm. right. I, wow. You know it, it's it's it has to do with Again, like preprint. Not totally sure, but this right. sounds. I mean, sounds right. It's to me. being peer reviewed. This does line up with a number of other findings that other studies have found that are also in peer review. So it'll be interesting to see how this comes out and how, frankly, how long it takes the WHO to take up this advice once it is (laughs) confirmed, because clearly there's a little bit of a delay, which is a slight issue. Right. Mm, Yeah. So. So let's go ahead and just like get into the last then, yeah, one la- last here. thing. Um, um, last coronavirus update. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, but it's a, yeah, it is important because again, this I think this inflects the importance of the thing that we talked about for the first hour of the of the uh, right. podcast, really, because like you know to like to not adequately do take measures against these things and to not adequately be able to like allow you know states or whoever like whatever fucking public health authority to be like reactive to new under and like. Uh, emerging understandings of this novel coronavirus mm-hmm. yeah. mm-hmm. um, is to like just doom us to failure basically. Yeah. Further failure. <laughs> so in this study, they, they surveyed among patients, a total of 37 different anatomical sites with biopsies and um, including the lungs, especially. And what they found was correlation between levels of the virus and inflammation in the internal organs and systems of the body. Um, now, this is something that, like, Artie and I have been talking That's about. It's, like, not usual. Yeah, it's not, like, a regular... You don't really hear that about... Like, that's not what right. you hear about, like, SARS-CoV-1. Mm-hmm. Because right. this isn't... Mm-hmm. When you say inflammation, like, most people think, like, I don't know, goop, basically. No, like I'm talking, like, Gwyneth Paltrow your shit. white blood cells are eating your pancreas or your lungs okay. or your va- vascular system. I- I'm talking, like you know, macrophage cells that are like somehow, you know, infected and accidentally eating the tissue or whatever, you know, it's, it's the kind of stuff that happens in a, in a body like mine that has an autoimmune disease. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, Which is why it's so unusual to see it in someone who's just like fighting a virus. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. It's just not normal. Um, and and I, I, I don't think we have a lot of hypotheses yet as to exactly why this is happening, but you know, the, the likelihood at this point is a combination of factors, of course. The fact that, you know, the coronavirus is very sneaky once it gets into the body. It's very hard to identify because, um, uh, as some other studies are showing, there are over, like, 
3,800 proteins that have been identified as receptors on COVID, which just means that it's really hard for the immune system to sort of create like one blanket antibody, right? right that would attack it. there's a lot of it. different stuff it could bind to. Exactly. Right. There's a lot of different ways to find COVID, so it makes it hard to find the right way to find it, right? Because um, yeah. not every virus cell is going to have all the receptors. So what they found in this tissue all over the body is that there were areas that were, you know, harbored the virus, right, in some tissues, and then they weren't inflamed, right? You had, like, areas of the body where there was, like, virus and the tissue was normal, but it was full of virus. And then you had, like, other areas in the body that had no virus but were, you know, heavily damaged by inflammation. Also inflamed, even though there was no viral... Hmm. There's no viral areas of the virus with no inflammation. Right, right. that's what I'm saying. And then they Uh, found areas of inflammation with no virus. So the findings have not been peer-reviewed, but this is consistent with a lot of the things that that we've heard anecdotally, like with children developing... Kawasaki and stuff. Sort of secondary symptoms that look a lot like autoimmune diseases uh, with people who are, you know, sick for weeks, months. There was that op-ed in Stat News. I've been sick with coronavirus for 100 days that like came when out. Will it end? Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, we're starting to see like what seems to be, you know, from my layman's perspective, which obviously is biased because I do have an autoimmune disease, to be like that people are sort of developing like and this, this some does, people some people all, yeah. are developing like a secondary immune reaction that is turning out to be just as deadly and difficult to manage as the virus itself. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, It's not, you know, it's not like super common for viruses to be tied to autoimmune diseases, but it's not unheard of. And there are other coronaviruses that do this. Um, Mm -hmm. So it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be ridiculous to, to hypothesize that there is a portion of COVID patients who will become protractedly ill as a result of an immune response. Um, Mm-hmm. That could be decades long, right. lifelong, right. for all we know. Because, like, for if you, for example, basically, I mean, you know, my, my guess, much like we said with like, you know, health policy or public policy, right? You do want to be more safe than sorry. And unfortunately, it does seem like if, you know, if these things, if there continues to be evidence like this, then it seems like you especially want to be more safe than sorry when it comes to this, because like, it's not just like people don't, people always talk about, um, you know, there's that whole discourse right now about like, oh, well, like cases are going up, but deaths aren't at the same rate or something. And it's like (laughs) so completely beyond the point because who cares if no one dies, if who cares if no one dies, if it is, let's say, you know, hypothetically based on, you know, uh, like things that are like possibly true or at least manifest in some cases, even if they're rare cases, right? Sure. Who care? Who cares if it's like... Not care- a death, right? Like who cares if it's not death if it turns out that essentially in the same way that we understand that like HIV causes AIDS, right? That right. like... Right. And, not, and I'm not saying that, not that, that, that right, it right, is right, that, right. but I'm just saying that who cares about how many deaths, uh, like about like deaths specifically if it's like... Well, you know, there aren't deaths, but actually it just creates an entire like generation of chronically ill people who have like right. an immune right. disorder. And I think that's like, I think actually like, you know, obviously you're not making cor- you're not making a correlation between HIV and COVID. But no, I think that not. the comparison yeah. to the public response to HIV is a good example. Like what we are seeing is uh, literally the same people involved on the CDC and FDA and NIH side. Right. In the at least on the U.S. end who um, maybe have have learned from their experience downplaying the AIDS crisis, right? right. Or maybe haven't yeah. in the case of Redfield in particular. So, you know, we we have, I think, 
this is just the one study that I'm talking about in terms of a biopsy that is not peer reviewed. But we have evidence going back to cases originating like in Wuhan, stuff that we was peer reviewed by like late January that was already showing that some patients don't die of like an upper respiratory infection. They die of a secondary immune response. So this is just the latest not yet peer reviewed study that adds more evidence to this possibility of, um, you know, some cases developing this very severe immunological response. And and it's interesting because it prevents a really it presents a really difficult situation for doctors. Right. Mm -hmm. Because if you think about it, it's kind of like the difficulty of treating me if I had a really bad um, virus. Right. Mm -hmm. Because like, yeah, you could like immune suppress the person while they're fighting the virus to try and prevent an immune response. But then what are they going to fight the virus with? Right. Or, and conversely, I guess if you or no, you could you could like boost the immune system. Let's say right, right, right. Yeah, let's try and help them fight the virus. But yeah. you could also speed along the immune response to a dangerous right. point by boosting right? the immune system in some way. You could accidentally, yeah, make it's, it so that the immune response is these like are the, flares. Right. Like these crazy. are the decisions yeah. that clinicians are making. They're sta- these are the things that they are thinking about that are keeping them up at night. That they're standing at the end of the bed and they know that they can't help, but they're going to try. Yeah. This is the right. impossible decision that they are making. Which thing is going to help the most first? Right. Right. And it seems to be like almost a race to sort of keep the body from running out of resources for as long as possible. Mm-hmm. And, you know, cells come from somewhere, right? When yeah. you're sick, when you're sick, um, you feel like shit, not because you have a virus inside you, but because your body's working double time, right? It's doing all right. its other regular stuff and it is replicating an entire army of things at the same mm-hmm. time. And that requires, you know, energy, glucose, like, water, you know, just the shit that you take into your body to keep yourself running. It's not just food. It makes your cells. Right. Right. And so you have almost like a race going on and Mm -hmm. it's difficult for doctors to figure out how to treat patients because it's so unclear and we know so little. And it's interesting because what they're seeing is that in some people who were critically ill with COVID-19 who who like then uh, had blood work done, they had high levels of a protein called a cytokine, which is a uh, cellular waste. It's something that can ramp up like an immune response. Um, so basically you might recognize this protein from HIV AIDS, but interleukin-6 is a mm-hmm. protein that um, is sort of a call to arms, let's say. And interleukin-6 indicates to macrophage cells that there is um, something that needs to be addressed. So macrophage cells can work in two ways. And these are sort of the big daddies of the immune system. These are, <laughs> I, as I was saying already, like the immune system is a party and the macrophage is the tank, right? Like they are big and they're also the ones where the party anti- as in World of Warcraft right. party. Yep. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I, I, think our, I think our listeners. Not party as in Kanye West's that. birthday party. <laughs> um, so... So macrophages fuel inflammation in in real time as they're working, but they're also the thing that makes antigens and antibodies, right? Mm -hmm. So you have this problem where the macrophages are being drawn because there's a big virus in the body. And so the interleukin-6 is telling the macrophages, you need to like make antibodies. And the macrophages are like, all right, let's do it. And it's a difficult infection, so they're working really hard. But you have the problem of the macrophages are also clearly doing damage that we're seeing in now months of biopsies of autopsies. 
Right. So you have a really difficult decision of, well, yeah, we can like give them a MAB and block the interleukin-6. We have drugs for that already. Like Roche makes one for rheumatoid arthritis, right? Mm-hmm. But like you kind of can't just go and do that to every COVID patient. Like this is the problem with why hydroxychloroquine being recommended by the president was dangerous, Yeah, you know? Mm-hmm. And this is sort of the situation we're in, which if you take into context, like what Phil was saying about, you know, federalism and, and our, our, the fiscal state of the United States and what we were talking about with the WHO, it really starts to make you wonder what everyone's hangup is with being overprepared in this scenario. Yeah. Right. So, that's kind of where I'm at right now. I'm a little out of breath. Sorry. <laughs> well, if you're overprepared, you you have to yeah. accept that the way that you were preparing before, there was something almost congenitally wrong with it. <laughs> <laughs> there, there are certain truths that cannot be admitted. All right. Totally. Does that make sense? Does that give you guys a good picture of where yeah. of like the most recent like two months of COVID research? I don't know. I, I don't know yeah. if this stuff yeah, is yeah. like. That no, only I mean, makes it, sense to me or whatever. <laughs> no, no, no. It's it, it's true because I, I, I talk to my uh, various family members who are uh, clinicians and and when you ask them like what like what's the course of treatment for uh, COVID patients, their their response tends to be about as long as that explanation because they are like because it is it is non-standard at this point. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and to be honest, like. Ooh. Or drink water, lie prone, basically, yeah. is unfortunately the best that we've got. <laughs> right. uh, Having been in the emergency room on stomach. around people who have been making these decisions for months in New York City on Monday night, like I went to the ER in an ambulance on Monday night and I went and the team was great and they were super on top of it. And as soon as they saw that I was immune compromised, their demeanor changed and they were like, get her in that room. You know, it has to be that one now. And, mm-hmm. you know, but just talking to them throughout the night, it was a brand new, it was a brand new wing of the emergency room. Brand new, one week old, right? Mm-hmm. Did it have that new wing smell? Ah, uh, you know it did. And that means it smells less like pee than it will in another week. But I don't know. <laughs> I had oxygen in. You don't smell anything when you're in oxygen. But like, so, you know, these doctors and nurses and, and techs and, and support staff and like, this whole team that was like making sure that I like was going to come home to you guys, you know, they, they've been fighting this for, for months, having to make these decisions. Right. And then they like leave work and they see Cuomo making a mask wall and, and saying, we've got to watch the credit rating of the state before we got (laughs) to, you know, make sure that like nurses get hazard pay. You know, the hospital built brand new ICUs for COVID patients that have 70 inch televisions. I found a press release that they put out announcing this, but the staff isn't getting hazard pay. My little sealed hermetic room with the, the special like non-contact wait, like RFID, wave your hand and it'll open the door. The door just kept opening and closing all night long until like 20 minutes before I was discharged. And so it was just like for the people that are actually standing at the end of the bed who are grappling with the situation that I just laid out for you guys Mm -hmm. day in, day out, day in, day out. Like we owe them more than to fuck around on the federal fiscal end. Yeah. You know what I Mm -hmm. mean? That's just my final thought for the day. Totally. That's a good yeah. one to end on. <laughs> on should, that note, great. On that note, uh, hey, no, it should inspire you to, to I don't know, 
Read about federalism. Yeah. Phil, yeah. you also had a you had a plug, right? You wanted to you wanted yeah, to make actually, sure to mention. Shout out to the uh, people who are working uh, at uh, Scholar Strategy Network. The workers there trying to unionize. Hell uh, yeah! Work with these folks before they are sort of doing work for an organization that uh, has a sort of goal of promoting sort of democratic values, and they want uh, a democratic workplace. So you know, more power to them. Solidarity. Yeah. Nice. Hell yeah. So there we go. We've got a positive note to end on totally. instead of doom mm-hmm. and gloom. This is the death panel. We're allowed to do that because we do it well, right? <laughs> we do. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Um, my illness has made me cocky finally. Um, all right. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it like, could be worse. The I secret mean, was just like being so tired you don't care anymore. <laughs> it could be worse. I mean, the, uh, you know, we're, uh, let's just say uh, another prominent artist is having a conversation about how nature is healing so uh, i'm just gonna oh, leave that yes. at that i haven't even i haven't even mentioned this to b because i knew it would just like make her too mad is. ahead of the yeah recording, don't t- but don't i won't don't, i'll tell you about I'll tell you, this. you i'll tell you after so join our discord because i'm gonna post about it in the discord uh-huh. yeah uh, and i'm just gonna leave this vague for now shat on oh you're sneaky all right well um i think with that uh i'll go ahead and plug our patreon again go ahead and support the show get access to the bonus episode that comes out every sunday or monday depending on which day we record it you know we always get it to you hot and fresh out of the podcast uh labor camp that is our apartment um, <laughs> it's a it's also a good one too i just want to show i've been it's a really good episode so we talked about uh we you know we, we talked about a lot it's a wide-ranging episode we you know hit on like monuments and the people who love them um mm, the clan mm-hmm. member who made mount rushmore and uh but that was then such a good episode actually talked mm-hmm. we had a long conversation about the sort of policy implications and uh the the re- policy wrangling and um you know public discourse around reopening schools um which mm-hmm. you know the aerosolization thing, I think, adds some more. Actually, it does. Yeah. I was um, hoping this study would be peer reviewed by Monday, but it wasn't right. still. So we were just like, fuck it. So we held on to it. Yeah. yeah. And then the uh, and then we capped it off with um, there was just a really frustrating take on uh, on like basically calling abolition like not good left politics that we just kind of tried to dismantle so if you liked you know if you've liked our uh tried to we eviscerated it yeah definitely <laughs> but if, you, if you've enjoyed our conversations about abolition uh, as part of like tying this in with all of these all the different issues that we talk about i'd highly recommend that um mm-hmm. it's, I, think, I think it's a good one it adds a lot to the conversation yeah, so, yeah. patreon.com slash death panel pod that was a fun yeah. one to record it was. I have fun doing this. Um, so yeah, <laughs> sorry, I'm really tired. We like the, you, we like the podcast that we do. Can you can you tell I'm a little hypoxic? I'm a little lightheaded. <laughs> <laughs> this is so nice. It's so fun. As long as um, you don't go back to the ER, I'm no, sure no, 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 good, no, so. no, no. I'm Chilling. gonna keep my blood. I'm gonna no, no, we are no more. Um, not that I didn't love being there, but <laughs> all right. So yeah, go ahead and follow us at Death Panel underscore wherever on social media and support us at Patreon.com/slash Death Panel Pod. With that. Solidarity forever. Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. And stay alive another week. Woo, cool. Is that good? Yeah.